Welcome, Usagi fans and podcast listeners, to Ronin Rabbit, episode 65. I'm your host, Ed Moore. For those brand new, the Ronin Rabbit is an Usagi Ojimbo fan podcast. If you want to leave feedback, variety of ways, Ronin Rabbit has a Google Plus page. I post the episodes courtesy of Steve on the Usagi Ojimbo Dojo Facebook page. The website, bigtimenoise.com slash Rabbit, where the episodes go up. And the Gmail address is usagipodcast at gmail.com. Today's issue is Usagi Ojimbo Volume 2, Issue 9 of the Mirage Run, cover dated August 1994. The story is entitled Slavers, Part 1. Now, as has been the case, I think, in every issue, every story so far, maybe with the exception of one, um, our main characters start out with Miyamoto Usagi, who is ever our protagonist. But also, this issue, we run into Hiro, who is a, a young lad who plays a part, Noburo, who is his father, and General... Fujii, I guess is how you would pronounce it. F-U-J-I-I. It's possible that one of the eyes are silent, but I haven't run into that too much in in Japanese names. So I'll, I'll go with Fujii. Really only one term that we've run into after we uh, go through the story here. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw it out there now. The, the, the single term that Mr. Sakai defined for us was sake. Um, I believe a lot of us are already familiar with that word if, you know, there's any word in the Japanese language that we have run across somehow that we're familiar with, except for maybe ninja and samurai. Okay, I take that back. One of several that you're probably used to here in in the West. Uh, Sake is the liquor that is typically shown to be consumed um, never having been to Japan, I don't know if it's consumed quite as often as our Western pop culture reflects it to be, but sake is Japanese rice wine. I, I kind of attribute it to similarly like our whiskey, perhaps, or Russian vodka, and what have you. All right, so our uh, story this time opens up. Um, I, I like the way that it's laid out by Mr. Sakai. He, he uses a very standard 3x3, three 9-panel three, page. A very, very traditional start to get things going. Um, I think it allows uh, an ample amount of movement of the story, but there's not any uh, jarringness to it. There's not large and small panels that maybe you momentarily have to try to figure out which to look at first or, or anything like that. Very straightforward, of course, left to right, top to bottom, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So it's 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 very, uh, it's the the story starts out for me. It started out very easy on the brain. Uh, I didn't have to use a whole lot yet. So we the the very first panel is a maybe a, a close up, lower down camera angle of like a field because we see some trees in the background and some grasses here up front closest to us, with a little. Uh, insect, a cricket, maybe, or a grasshopper. Uh, since it's making noise, I would assume it's not intended to be a grasshopper. It's probably a cricket. 
And then a, a huge foot comes stomping through with a shackle and a chain attached to it, uh, knocking the insect aside. And then the insect falls back down onto the blade of grass that it originally was as the tromp, tromp sound of the feet uh, recede. So here we, we have a, a set camera point of view, and then you, you can envision someone running through that camera point of view on into the distance, whichever way. We then have the camera from above focused on the individual that's running, and now the next three panels focus in on him more, closer and closer. Um, he's been running. It, we can see we can assume that it's a male uh, when I first saw I thought it was a smaller juvenile male perhaps and we can see that he uh, has been running long enough that he's starting to breathe harder um, trying to escape something um, he stops in a creek jumps into the creek standing in it uh, kind of takes his bearing leans over a rock as he's trying to catch his breath and he's thinking that he can't run anymore but then suddenly he hears a voice uh, behind him that says he can't be much further ahead the now the uh, it, the animal uh, that this young lad looks is like a, a bear like a, a bear cub then so he looks over his shoulder frightenedly and then takes off again running uh, now rather than thinking he can't run anymore he's thinking I can't let them catch me uh, so the next page, our, our panel's uh, breakdown starts to change a little bit as it is necessary for the story uh, to allow us a little bit more freedom artistically to, to show some things. So that original nine-panel breakdown got us going into a flow, and now uh, for the rest of the story, Mr. Sakai uh, starts playing with the panel placement and sizes as best fits the story he's wanting to tell this issue. And I know I, I don't always mention things like that. Um, that's because, honestly, it just depends on what I've been doing when I sit down to read a particular comic book. If I've been reading a batch of comics up to that point, I'm kind of not paying as much attention to the differences because of the just the volume of what I have recently done. Now, as it is, I've gone several, several days with other issues to take care of, and I haven't read a whole lot of comics, so the way that these are laid out just seems to stand out to me more. I apologize if that bores you. I, I try not to harp on things like that, but as things come to mind, as I record, I try to record very stream of consciousness. I don't have very many notes. I don't want to read or anything like that. So these things, as they pop into my head, and if they pop in there, Significantly enough, I try to say them. Sometimes I suppress some things, particularly if they're off-color or not appropriate. So, um, The bear cub is running. Now he's concerned about being caught. As he's running in one panel, he glances over his shoulder because he hears them speak again to see how close they are. We see that he is indeed shackled between his feet. Now, uh, it's, it's a mistake if this boy had captors that his shackles had this much play in the chain between them for this very reason. It, there was enough play that it allowed him to move his feet enough to run, which he's been doing. Uh, that chain here proves his undoing as he goes to leap over a fallen log, and of course that darn branch snags the chain and he trips and falls on the other side of the log instead of just you know jumping over it to continue running. Falls 
we find that uh, it looks like he's running upstream or downstream in a creek. You can't really tell which one because when he falls, he falls into water on the other side of the log. So the log is laying across the creek. And as he looks up, he he looks up um, exclaimedly because there's a speech bubble with a question mark. So you can put whatever sound effect in there that you would make if you were in that situation. And we see on the side of that panel a figure standing uh, with Geta on and in some sort of thing that comes all the way down to his ankles, whether it's long pants or a robe or what have you. Next page is a three-quarter page panel with the title of The Story Slavers. And the young boy is looking up and we see who we recognize to be Usagi. Standing there, looking kind of almost dour at the young boy. It, it's not that he has an expressionless face. He, he, To me, he very much has an expression. And I, I thought that perhaps it was a little out of place because Usagi isn't necessarily a, a harsh man unless he has to be. But here it looks like his initial... Um, confrontation, or not confrontation, that's a bad word, his initial interaction with this young boy who just fell down in front of him is rather harsh given the circumstance. Um, we don't know, maybe he saw him running down the creek, you know, and so, but I, I, that struck me when I read it that Usagi looked particularly harsh this early on. So as he's standing there, the boy tells him, you're not one of them. Help me. Don't let them take me back. And then immediately, the group that has been chasing him has caught up, so they, they weren't that far behind. And they're standing here on the one side of the log, telling Usagi to just, you know, go away. This is none of your business. The boy's asking Usagi for help. And Usagi says, the boy is shackled, but you aren't prison authorities. Who are you? So immediately, Usagi has, you know, assessed the situation and feels that something is off from the way it looks. Well, the four, whatever you want to call them, brigands, we don't know what they are yet, uh, but we do know that they must be something bad because immediately they attack Usaki. They don't try to speak. They don't try to do anything. They just attack. So three of them jump over the log and charge Usagi. And of course, uh, those of us that are familiar with Usagi knows that all we have to do is work our way through, you know, two or three or four panels, and Usagi's good. So, no worry there. He dispatches the three. The fourth, however, who stood back is a bowman. So now he's knocked and drawn down on Usagi, and as he prepares to fire, the young boy who is actually behind Usagi. Usagi told him, stand behind me, you know, so that he was protecting the boy. From behind Usagi, the boy picks up a river rock, throws it, and hits the bowman in the head, knocking him out, which is, um, I think, for just a, a lad, conceivably with no training, pretty darn impressive. First, he managed to hit the dude, but he also hit him hard enough that it knocked him out, not just stunned him, uh, a couple panels later, he's laying there in the creek bed unconscious. So, I mean, he knocked him out. Uh, for those of you, I guess, with a more ad adult bend, you can say he was KTFO'd. So Usagi goes over, um, grabs up the, the guy who is alive. Of course, he killed the other three. He tells the young boy who 
is starting to tell his story, um, and then Usagi prompts him, you know, as they're doing this stuff, kind of, uh, let's do uh, multiple things at one time. Tell me your story while we're wrapping up our little encounter here. The boy tells him his name is Hiro, H-I-R-O. Usagi tells Hiro to go to the other three men, uh, gather up their belts and any sashes, any ties that they have to cinch things with, and come over here and and help me tie up this guy who is still alive. We're we're just going to leave him. So they do that, and all the while the boy is telling his story. He comes from a village. Uh, The name of the village is Higashi. And that uh, two months ago, things had gotten so bad with the village that the village headman and elders had decided that they needed to um, buy protection for their village. So they contacted this General Fujii, and he and his men uh, did indeed agree to protect the village. The very first thing they did is they entreated the villagers to build a wall completely around the village to, and I'm using air quotes here, protect the village from the bandits that the village was concerned about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, as soon as the wall is completed and, and this village now is successfully cut off from the rest of the world, the protectors reveal themselves to be the very bandits that the village was concerned about. So now their protection has turned into their prison. And the bandits are in charge. So you have a uh, a fox hen house situation here going. Very, very tra- traditional. The bandits then, because they have the massively upper hand, force the villagers into uh, a slave situation. All the food, um, excuse me, all the crops that are harvested by the villages, villagers, a small percentage stays to keep them alive. The bandits eat what they want, and they turn around and sell the rest of the food to make money off of. And this goes uh, for a while. Uh, Hero mentions that all the villagers are shackled to keep them from escaping, hence his shackles when we are first introduced to him. As time goes by, things are uh, in, in control, under control by the bandits, but they start to run out of their supply of sake that the village had when they captured it. So the bandits come up with a plan to take a mass of the rice with uh, an escort and a couple villagers to uh, kind of like camouflage what they're doing. They take a, a big delivery of rice to a nearby village and trade it for a new supply of sake. The Bandits that went apparently took some sake with them, and along the journey they drank a little bit too much, lost control of what they were doing, allowed the boy to escape. And soon after is where we encounter him at the beginning of the story. Uh, In the midst of telling this story, Usagi has extracted some sort of pick. It looks like from the uh, guard, and I apologize, I know that that has a a set term, uh, the guard of his katana, he has some sort of metal pick that he has, or a pick of some sort, I don't know that it would be metal, that he took, and as the boy was talking, he picked his shackles off, and we pointedly see Usagi put it back in where it came from, so it's kind of one of those hidden things that a lot of times 
um, samurais will have so that if they're ever disarmed, they never lose everything that they have, all of their tools. And (laughs) actually, that comes into play here a little bit later in the story with uh, this bandit that Usagi tied to a tree, uh, actually. Maybe that's why it's there. It's kind of a foretelling kind of thing. So, Hiro continues with the story. Um, Usagi decides that he's going to help. Tells Hiro to go to the next village. Tell that village what is going on. I will go to your village, infiltrate it, and do something. You know, Usagi's not too sure because he doesn't know what the situation is. Uh, uh, Who knows? Is he going to go and get the villagers to rise up? Is he going to go and try to kill the leader of the bandits? Uh, Something in between? You know, he's not sure, but he knows that he has to go do something there. While they were talking, the thought occurred to him that harvest is coming up, and as soon as that harvest is done, the bandits will have no more need for the villagers, so they will probably do something uh, nefarious, undoubtedly. So they leave the fourth bandit that was not killed tied up to the tree. Usagi says, ah, you're good, you're awake. The authorities will come and get you, you'll be no problem. Usagi goes to the village, Hiro goes to the neighboring village, and the last several panels on this page, we see that the bandit that was tied to the tree is now trying to get to his money pouch, because obviously he has something in his money pouch that will allow him to get out. I find it interesting that in tying this, uh, air quotes here, bad guy up, Usagi didn't search him to make sure he had gotten everything knowing that he himself is a samurai and he hides things on his person it didn't occur to usagi in this instance because they had plenty of time to do this uh, it's not like they were rushed to secure this guy gather up the supplies to tie him tie him securely you know all that plenty of time to search him but he did not completely all right our story moves on following usagi usagi gets to the village he's confronted by the guards um the guards are doing what they're supposed to do. Usagi plays the part of tough because that's that's his persona that he has in this instance. And to show that he deserves to have an audience with the general, he quickly dispatches non-lethally these two guards out in front of the village. They take him in, take him to the general. Um, Usagi makes introductions, uh, lies about how he knows the situation in the village, how he even knows that they may be looking for hired hands. The general reluctantly takes Usagi on, um, as you know, you, you would hope that of the bandits, the leader is going to be the wisest, and he does, he does show that here. Takes Usagi on, but as Usagi is leaving to be shown the ropes, um, we see that the general is thinking, you know, hmm, th- something just feels odd. Uh, that's okay, though. I'll just keep my eye on this new dude because in a couple days, my sake contingent will be back, and I'll ask them if they know about this Ronin because that was the connection that Usagi used as to how he knew what he knew. So uh, in a couple days, we'll be able to clear this up. You know, Unlike today, you sit down, you do a little Google search, you find out. Yeah, so... This, this is the original Google search. you got to wait for a face-to-face with people to get your information. So they take Usagi, a couple of the thugs, take Usagi out to the field, 
uh, we have several panels of the villagers just being abused in a variety of ways in order to get the job done that the bandits want. Usagi decides that he's going to make contact with Hiro's father, Noboro, who also is the village headman. So he asks the thugs, you know, who who is the village leader? I'll, I'll go to him first. Uh, the concept being, of course, that you always confront and take out the biggest or the baddest or something like that, and everybody else falls into line. So Usagi is showing, you know, that as a tough, he knows what he's doing because he's going right for the leader of the quote-unquote resistance. So he goes up to the headman, is doing double duty here. He's He's pushing and kicking him around and talking smack so that the other thugs can hear. But surreptitiously, he is whispering to the headman, and they are uh, having a second conversation behind, uh, underneath the conversation that the thugs hear Usagi, although it's not much of a conversation because, of course, the headman is being beat down, so he's, he's not going to be talking back. But Usagi tells him uh, who he is, who why he's there. He passes along a little story from Hiro that Hiro said would allow his dad to know that Usagi is on their side. He's a friend. So there's there's a friendly um, story that is passed on that allows this headman to know that Usagi is working for them. Usagi then goes back up to the thugs. You know, they're clapping him on the back. Oh, you know how to handle these people and all this kind of claptrap. Later on that night, big party, much revel-making. The other thugs are trying to entice Usagi to drink, but Usagi is is keeping a clear head. He's he's not partaking any at all. And he gets word from one of these drunk thugs that, sure enough, as soon as the harvest is done, uh, they're going to take care of all the witnesses. They won't leave any witnesses to our crime, is his words. And so... Immediately, Usagi realizes, you know, wow, not only was he right, but he most certainly has to do something to protect all of these villagers who are just going to be slaughtered. The general shows up, checking on his men, talking to Usagi, and he has a friend with him. And in walks the thug that Usagi had tied up to the tree. Turns out that in his money pouch... The thug kept a lucky arrowhead, which he used to cut his way out. So immediately, the general orders Usagi detained. Um, It doesn't go well for the thugs at first because, again, they're all drunk, so they, they don't fare very well. But by the time Usagi manages to actually draw his sword, uh, he is sorely, sorely, sorely outnumbered. He gets beat down, finally secured. The thug from previously tells Usagi, thus telling us, how he managed to escape. The next morning, um, the slaves are roused by the thugs. They're all gathered up outside because the general has an announcement for him. And he parades a tied-up, beat-up Usagi before them, uh, Telling them basically that you, you you have no hope because this man had come to rescue you and we have your man, so forget it. Things won't change. Just go about doing what you've been doing and everything will be cool. And that's where part one ends. 
do have some feedback. Um, it is a little late in coming, and I apologize for that. This feedback was in reference to episode 55, and it is from Steve, and he starts out. This was a comment left on the website. He says, another great podcast, a couple pieces of trivia about this story and the Usagi stories in the other two Usagi Yojimbo color specials from Fantagraphics. Even though these three stories were published by Fantagraphics well before Stan Sakai moved to Dark Horse Comics, these stories were actually collected by Dark Horse in one of their reprint books rather than in any of the Fantagraphic books. They were not even included in the Usagi Ojimbo Special Edition 2-volume Omnibus Edition from Fantagraphics, which I definitely know because that's what I used initially as my uh, material for the podcast, was that 2-volume edition. The reason was because when Stan Sakai wrote the stories, he set them a little bit forward in Usagi's future compared to the ongoing timeline of the regular series. And as he continued to write new stories for Fantagraphics, then Mirage, and finally Dark Horse, the future kept slipping back farther and farther. Finally, these three stories were finally reprinted in Usagi Ojimbo Book 22, Tomoe's story in 2008. That was a full 19 years after the first color special was published, and 17 years after this particular story, the story I spoke of in episode 55. I guess you could say it took a while for the continuity of the regular issues to catch up with these three stories. During those intervening years, Stan also managed to write an awesome story that works as a prequel to this story. A three-part story where Usagi and fan-favorite cast member uh, Sasuke, the demon queller, have their first encounter with a strange Sumei paint set a story which is collected in 2004's Usagi Yojimbo Book 18, Travels with Jotaro. So cool. Um, This is the kind of stuff that I like to have because I am not, admittedly, as steeped in Usagi as other people that I am aware of. So having the opportunity for people to tell me things like this is really cool. That having been said, I apologize if any of you feel slighted in that perhaps I covered those stories out of any kind of um, official sequence or anything like that. Uh, I wasn't aware of that then. I am now, but of course it's too late because I've already spoken on those stories. But uh, my goal is to speak on the stories first. Uh, hopefully do them in order second. So sometimes those purposes cross each other, and I, I apologize for that if it uh, is uh, a, a negative on, on any listeners' parts. Thank you, Steve, for that feedback. I, I appreciate that, sir. And actually, uh, so that you know, next episode, I will um, add the comments that you had, Steve, for episode 59. So... Um, And as you might have been able to put together, I record these episodes a little bit in advance and then release them. Hence, why three and four months later I um, talk about particular comments or feedback that I may have received. Again, I'm not holding on to those. It's just the next opportunity I have. So, next time out, Usagi Ojimbo Volume 2, Issue 10, cover dated October 1994 from Mirage Publications. See you guys then. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0, unported license. <laughs>